Exodus chapter 20 is where we're going to be. You may or may not have been familiar with this passage. Uh, It's known as the Ten Commandments. You may have heard of it. People get real upset when they get deleted from judicial places and things like that. Anyway, that's a soapbox I don't have time to get into. So, um, here we go. If you have a white or blue Bible that we gave you, it's page 35. Um, You can find it there. We've been working our way through the book of Exodus. There's been a lot that has gone on in the story of the book of Exodus up to this point. I don't have time to recap it all. I did recap it all a couple weeks back, and then I got home, and my son was like, that was a really long intro. So, um, all right, I'll take it. So uh, if you want to hear more of the intro, go back a couple weeks on the recordings or um, read it yourself. Uh, It's it's a a worthwhile read. Sad thing happened to me this week, not to be this guy, but I'm going to start with this. The space bar on my laptop broke. Yeah, which, so there's no spaces in my message. So if it sounds like a run-on sentence, that's what happened. Um, I'm kidding. I'm getting it fixed. Uh, I made an appointment at the Apple store. They said they could fix it, and they had me sign this thing, okay? You probably have signed a similar thing. I just was like, yeah, I need a laptop to write things uh, that people will listen to. So they were like, here's the thing, sign it. And I was like, okay, sign it. And then they, you want me to email you a copy? Sure. They emailed me a copy. And I was like, I don't even know what I signed. Just start reading through it. A little surprised at what I read. Um, I didn't realize this. I'm, I, I got this. Terms and conditions, blah, 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 service care. By signing this repair agreement, I'm agreeing to my understanding acceptance of the following conditions. I am prohibited from owning, operating, or being in the presence of any personal computer, tablet, smartphone, or any like-functioning device that's not made by its made by and produced made and produced by Apple Incorporated. I am prohibited from desiring such products from said manufacturers or engaging in such activities as would cause me to desire such products. This includes, but is not limited to, the possession of printed promotional materials for such products the watching or viewing of advertisements for competitor-produced products, having conversations about similar products that are not designed and produced by Apple Incorporated. I am from this moment forward strictly prohibited from saying anything that could be interpreted by any person at any time as negative about Apple Incorporated. I am also strictly prohibited from engaging in behavior or conversation that may be interpreted by any person at any time as reflecting positively on any Apple Incorporated competitor or their products. Now, some of you caught on like halfway through, like, oh, this is a joke. This isn't real. Some of you were like, I knew Apple was the Antichrist, <laughs> which is fine. Um, at first, you got a little bit upset, right? You're like, wait, don't get mad at Apple, right? Some of you like Samsung people, like, I knew it. Told you the whole time. Galaxy. It's worth $8 the day after I bought it, but it's not Apple. OK, so. Um, It's crazy what we actually think of things depending on the context. Because if these were marriage vows, we'd be fine. Right? If we were at a wedding, not only would you not be upset, some of you would be crying. You'd be like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard in my life. Right? But if it's a computer company, you're like, what the heck? Are you kidding me? And so the context is 
is so important, okay? Same thought, same ideas, and if it's in the correct context, not only do you not get mad, but you think it's beautiful, and it becomes a symbol of one of the most important things in life, love and commitment and longevity and legacy. And, and not only is it like one of the most important things in life, it's like one of the reasons it's great to be human and alive is because that kind of love exists. And, and so we're going to talk about that when we go through the Ten Commandments. That's what's happening. We've been saying it over and over, but... Uh, I kind of want to remind you, this is not just a list of rules that God spit out at some point in time. It was like, follow these, or I'm going to send you all to hell, which is how lots of people interpret it. And that, unfortunately, has been passed down by people misrepresenting what's going on here. Many people don't understand the context, and their understanding of the language in the Ten Commandments is therefore very skewed, and it becomes really offensive and shocking just like that was offensive and shocking to some of you. But really, the Ten Commandments, if you don't understand the context, is really like, what are we doing here? It's so countercultural. Like, we don't do it like that. It's so, like, uncomfortable. It's like, that doesn't feel good, right? Same thing as if in a wedding. To be honest, we say some pretty crazy things in a wedding, right? And nobody bats an eye. It's like, do you, groom, promise to love this wife in sickness and in health? It's like, mm, do I still get to go fishing? Right? How sick? Right? Like, and we say that, and everybody's like, yes, beautiful. Right? And it's like a huge commitment. And nobody ever gets to the end of a wedding. Is like, sounds legalistic to me. And it sounds like a lot of control there. Nobody does that. And yet, somehow, when we read the Ten Commandments, we're like, oh, I don't know, that sounds pretty legal, That's pretty, pretty narrow, pretty unforgiving. Um, so here's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, we're going to continue through the Ten Commandments. Um, I'm actually going to give you like some homework or some thinking about homework. Maybe we'll actually make some space for this later. Uh, what if you were to take the Ten Commandments and rewrite them in your own words? Have you ever thought about doing that? Like just you and the Holy Spirit and saying like, okay, Lord, here's what I think it says, right, uh, if I were to rewrite this in a way that made sense to me, and if you could think through some of these ideas like, oh, what if this was a wedding vow? What if this was a covenant relationship like it says it is? Like, what if this was not, right, because some of us get to thou shall not, and we're like, already done. We're like, no, we're good. And we think that any sort of commandment given by God is restrictive and narrow and dogmatic and legalistic. And what if God actually had our best and highest in mind? What if you were rewriting these as a uh, kind of counsel to your wedding or your friend's wedding? If your friend was like, hey, how, how, should, I, how should I go about a wedding? Uh, and you're like trying to explain it to him. It's like, actually, it would be really helpful if you guys didn't have any other people that you loved romantically in your lives. I mean, that's the first commandment, right? And then you get to the second commandment. It would really be helpful if you didn't have any, like, trinkets or reminders of, of things from your past that, like, stirred up your affections towards prior loves. It would be really helpful if there wasn't other things you served and pursued above your wife or husband. It would be really helpful uh, if you did some of these things. So we, we do it. We set some pretty high expectations and say some pretty crazy stuff at a wedding. Nobody gets upset. So what if we rewrote these? And, and here's the three things I want you to think 
as we go through these commands. We're going to read them in a second. First, I want you to understand God's nature is overwhelmingly love. We talked about this last week, but if you love someone with all of your heart and you wanted the absolute best for them, but you knew there were some things that they needed to stay away from, but you wanted to tell them with love, how would you say that? That's, that's what you should think through. Like, I love you so much. There's also some loaded guns in your life that you shouldn't pick up and play with because they will destroy things, either you or the people around you. And, and what, what would that sound like? Uh, the second thing I want you to remember as we go through this is God is reshaping his people's lives and culture that they might be a priesthood. Okay, now some of you are like, okay, back to Christian church words. Priesthood is like an in-between. Stephen talked about it a couple weeks ago when we studied through Exodus 19. This priesthood is like an in-between. It's like a representative, a translator almost. Like God's over here and people are over here and the communication is blocked. There's a separation. So we need somebody in-between who can go through to both. And the people of God were supposed to be that in-between. They were supposed to have a connection with God and a connection with people so they could, as they were drawing near to God, be a symbol to the rest of the world that, hey, you guys should come draw near to God too. That's the whole point of the people of God is, is that they were a priesthood, a representation. And, and God was doing this, and this is the third thing I want you to keep in mind as we go through this. God was doing this by drawing the people to himself. Okay, so he's drawing the people close to himself. That's what the commandments are about. The commandments are not check the boxes and then I'll let you through the pearly gates. The commandments are if you, or these are the relational ideals of the covenant. If you follow these and obey these and stay in line with the heart of these, you will be drawn closer to God himself for your good. And so what happens is as the people are drawn close to God, they are a picture to all the world of what it looks like to draw near to God. That's the whole point of this. And if we understand it right, the purpose of the commands is to draw near to God. And, and what's interesting about this is so many people just want to follow the rules without any intention of drawing near to God. Now, yeah, I follow the rules or I look like I do. That would make just as little sense as someone standing up and taking wedding vows with no intention of loving their spouse, which sadly people do a lot, right? They don't even know what they're saying. Like, well, we got to do it because that's what everybody else says. And then they just say the words and have no intention of actually following through on them. That, that would be a misunderstanding of wedding vows, just like that would be a misunderstanding of the Ten Commandments, that these were just things to follow so you would have a better life. It's intended to draw you near to God. And, and here's what's super interesting about that, as we're going to get on later into this, right? If the purpose of the commands is to draw the people of God close to God, that means when you read something like, thou shall not lie, right? This idea of truth and lies and how you interact with and handle truth and lies can be a means by which you do or do not draw nearer to God, right? So you're like, it's a little white lie. Be like, or it's a means by which you draw closer to God or separate yourself further from God. Your handling of truth, right? Your handling of stealing, right? Property rights and who owns what and what's mine and what's not mine. The way you view that can be a means by which you draw closer to God or push yourself further away from God. And then you get later down into the end of the commandments and coveting and your neighbor's stuff and your neighbor's oxen, even your neighbor's wife, 
Think about the depth of that, that your relationship with your neighbor's wife can be a means by which you draw nearer to or further from God. So that's my intro. Was that short enough, Toby? I'm just joking. Don't answer that. Just to give you kind of an example, I actually did this. It took me less than 15 minutes, and I did a summary of the first two commandments. I'm going to put it on the screen. I'll read it for you just to kind of give you an idea. Here's the first two commandments in my own words. I am Yahweh who has overwhelmingly proven my love for you. Because I love you, I want you to know that, what, that you will limit your potential to receive the life I desire to give you, your best life, the life you dream of living if you continue to devote yourself to things that are not me. Serving and orienting your life around the pursuit of things of this world is a death sentence. I wish you would worship me with the same effort you pursue wealth, pleasure, and comfort. Those things cannot deliver what they promise. It moves me to sadness and even anger when I see the way the pursuit of things of the world wounds people. I won't tolerate the way people hurt one another, even if it takes me three or four generations to put an end to it. But even my deep hatred of sin is minuscule in comparison with the love I have for people. If you were to try and measure it objectively, it would be useless because my steadfast love cannot be quantified. Right? And that took me like less than 10 minutes. And I'm pastor, so that has super pastor language in it. I get it. But right, what if you did that? Like just tomorrow morning, you got up, you're like, all right, pastor told me to do this and try to rewrite some of these commands in your own words. See how that works. Anyway, here we go. Let's read Exodus chapter 20, starting at verse one. And God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You should not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That's my hope, is that we're going to get through two more commands today, which it took us four weeks to get through the first two commands. So if you're a praying person, pray right now that I can do this. Verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Don't take the Lord name, Lord's name in vain. Anybody ever heard that phrase, the name of the Lord in vain? And we kind of have made it, in 2023, it kind of means like saying something about God when you stub your toe, right? If you like drop a hammer on your foot and you're like, Jesus Christ, and people are like, <gasps> some of you are like cringing in your soul just because I said that from stage, right? Like that's how we've been brought up. Like to take the Lord's name in vain is about curse words, right? And saying things that you shouldn't say. Now, I'm not advocating that, okay? So don't hear me be like, Jared said I could say, God damn it, as much as I want. Like that's not what I'm saying. I'm sorry I said that, right? But, um, but I will say that that's a misunderstanding of the depth of what it actually says, 
okay? The word translated here is usually translated to carry, okay? When it says take the Lord, name of it, that's usually the word to carry, which is not that I understand how the translators got take, right? If I was to go and pick something up with the intention of carrying it, that would be to take it, right? If I said, come take a Bible, I would mean get up out of your seat, come pick it up and carry it, right? So that's, that's how they got the word take. It's not that far off, other than when we think take, we think speaking, but the actual translation is more about picking up and carrying it. So I think it's helpful just in my mind to remind myself if I say, don't carry the name of the Lord in vain. If we were rewriting this, I would start by saying that. Don't carry Yahweh's name in vain. Well, what does it mean to carry the name? Well, that same exact Hebrew phrase, carry the name, is going to be used a couple chapters later when it talks about the high priest. And the high priest's uniform has this breastplate of precious metal, and on it is engraved the names of the tribes of Israel. And the, the phrase is that he carries the name of the tribes of Israel into the presence of the Lord. So it's like this idea of representation, right? This, this priesthood that we talked about earlier, right? This representation to the world. So this is representation language, not curse word language. You see the difference, right? What he's describing here is a way that you model and represent and are an ambassador an image or picture the God whom you serve, not necessarily what you say when you hit your thumb with a hammer. It's more about being a representative of Yahweh. Um, and so go back to the wedding idea. In the wedding covenant, everybody understands that the husband and wife are now united in covenant and now represent one another, right? Everybody gets that. Everybody gets that. If you're now married, then stuff the husband does reflects in some way on the wife, and stuff the wife does reflects in some way on the husband. And actually, it's more than that. Not only do you represent one another in the marriage covenant, in this new family and relationship that you've built, but you actually also represent marriage. Some of you have been part of families that have messed up marriage so badly that you no longer believe in it. Right? People do that all the time. They get raised in these families where marriage is so mangled and jacked up and not what it was intended to be that they're like, it's just a piece of paper. I don't need it. What's happening there? Well, the representation of the marriage covenant was so poor that carrying the name of marriage was so bad that it influenced somebody to not even believe in it anymore. I don't even think it's a real thing. I think it's just a man-made tradition. It's obsolete old school, unnecessary. And, and not only are we carrying the family name and the idea of the marriage covenant, but sometimes we're even carrying the idea of love when we stay those vows, right? When we say, I promise to love you, I promise to give myself for you, to death do us part, all that kind of stuff, right? People have seen those relationships so jacked up, they're like, I don't even believe in love anymore. I don't even believe in true love. I don't even think there's someone for me out there. So, so there's a lot that happens when you enter into a covenant that you are now representing, you are walking in the name of. That's the idea here. It absolutely boggles my mind then that God would allow people, human beings, to carry his name at all. 
I mean, we do such a terrible job. I almost feel like Will Smith, Chris Rock's like, get your wife's name out of my mouth, right? Like that kind of like, don't say my name. Like, don't talk about me. Like, don't speak, like, because we're terrible at it, right? Like, don't say the things. Like, I would, if I was God, well, I do this all the time. Right? I, I remember in Bible college, I got this girl a job because I kind of knew her. She was like friends of a friend, and I worked at a place. And then she applied, and she's like, can you put in a good word for me? And I was like, okay. And then she just didn't show up for shifts. And I was like, hey, I put in a good name for you. Like, they're not going to trust me at all now because you suck at life. Show up for your shifts. Right? And I'm, that took me like two seconds to be mad about. Right? Yet God in his grace and mercy has allowed humans to carry his name. Now, follow me here. Put these two ideas together. If we are to carry the name in vain, right? The obedience of the commands were a way to carry the name not in vain, okay? So if we're to carry it the correct way, or carry it, represent him in a way that is not negative, is not a bad image, is not a misrepresentation of the God we serve, how would we do that? Well, if you remember, what I just said was, the commands are a way that we draw near to God. So we obey the commands and draw near to God. So if we're just taking those two ideas, there's other ideas that we could talk about this morning, but I'm just going to take those two. If we miss either one of those two ideas, obeying the commands or drawing near to God, then we would be miscarrying or misrepresenting the name of Yahweh. And people do this all the time. First, they act as if you could draw near to God without any obedience to his word. I could draw near to God. Well, his word says this. I'm fine. Uh, I, I hope so. Right? Without any intention of, yeah, I know the Bible says that, but I'm, I, don't, I don't think it means that. I don't believe that. Right? Uh, that seems like it would be a miscarrying of the name of Yahweh, right? If you think that you can draw near to Yahweh while blatantly disregarding his word. And I'm not talking about the like peripheral issues that there's like argument about, like, oh, I think this about this and think of this. There's grace in those areas, the things that are not clear, right? But there's some things that are really clear and people are just like, yeah, I ain't doing that at all. I know I do that wrong. Nobody's perfect, Right? Like, I don't know. That seems like that would be carrying the name in vain. The second way you could mess this up, right, is to obey the commands. We talked about this earlier without any intention of drawing near to God. And people do both of these all the time, right? They make up their own versions of who Yahweh is and how he responds. They make up an own God in their head. And they're like, this is what my God is like. And then they serve that God instead of actually finding what the scripture says about Yahweh and serving him, right? And so they don't obey any of the things they read or many of the things they read, or they obey, but just so they look good, but they don't actually intend to draw near to Yahweh. And, and, and everybody knows people in their lives, maybe even have gone through seasons in their own life where they are one or both of those at the same time. You either just become a rule follower who has no actual affection or devotion for God, but your life looks pretty if you kind of squint and look at it from the right angle, or you become this self-made idolater where you have a version of God in your own head that isn't actually matching up with what the scripture says about Yahweh, and you think you're drawing near to that God instead of obeying what the word actually says. And it's interesting because all three of these 
these first three commands that we read, right? Have no other gods before me, no images, no idols, no carved things, and don't carry the name in vain, right? They're all tied exactly to the story that we've been walking through, right? Yahweh delivered his people from slavery, so don't serve other gods because other gods didn't deliver you from slavery. Yahweh delivered you from slavery, so don't serve other gods, right? It seems pretty simple. Which God set you free? Yahweh, maybe you should start there. <laughs> Second command, right? Yahweh led the people in a fire and in a cloud. No images. He wasn't like, I'm a giant eagle with a lion head leading my people through the desert. It's like, no, no images, no pictures, no representations, right? No symbols. He didn't appear as some super cool, like, animal or something we could put on a flag and like make that our mascot. He didn't do that. So no images. And then I brought you to myself to be a kingdom of priests. So don't carry my name in vain. All right. All three of those commands are exactly what he's been leading the people through in the story. And if you don't walk through the context of that, you just read rules that are like an Apple agreement that you're like, wait, what? No story behind it. This is outrageous. But if you read the story, it makes a lot of sense. Now, some people mistakenly think that if they're making any effort at all to connect with God, then they are fine because making an effort is all that matters, right? So they're like, well, I'm trying. I say my prayers before I eat sometimes. I have a Jesus bumper sticker. I make it to church when I can. Now, I'm not disparaging any of those things, okay? But carrying the name in vain means that just intending to carry the name is not an obedience to the commandment. Do you see that? Right? He says, hey, it's good that you're trying to carry the name or giving some effort to carry the name. But the important thing is that you try to carry it not in vain, not to somewhere empty and useless and meaningless. It's kind of like uh, when you have like a six-year-old kid that wants to pick up like a one-year-old kid. You ever seen that? It happens all the time upstairs, right? Poor nursery workers and stuff, right? They're like, the six-year-old kid is like, I want to pick up this baby and just like grabs it around the neck. It's like, lift. And you're like, no, 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 no. You can't do that. Like if you're going to carry that baby, there's a way you're going to carry it or you're going to kill it, right? So you can't just grab it around the neck and lift. That's actually going to be harmful for everybody involved, okay? That's the same exact thing when it comes to representing Yahweh's name. There's a way that you are called to carry it. You can't just make up however you want to carry it. Well, I gave some effort here. I'm just going to lift by the neck, see what happens, right? It gets really destructive when we start doing that, okay? The effort is great. I'm glad that there's people out there that make some sort of effort, but you also need to pay attention to how you're making the effort and make sure it's in line with how the Spirit is leading and what the Word of God says. Okay, look at that. I went through a whole command. I should get a round of applause. No, I, no, don't. That was bad. I shouldn't do that. God's going to strike me dead. I shouldn't have done that. This is like made myself an idol. Okay, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Sabbath 
Uh, it's kind of an old school word. If you've heard it, it's probably been in kind of a legalistic context, follow the rules in order to make God happy context. But the literal language is a day of stopping. A day of stopping. And it's a day of stopping that because of the people of God stopping is kept holy. Okay, so holy was another one of those churchy words. We don't really know what it means. Holy just means set apart, right? It's just not normal, run-of-the-mill, everyday, common. It's set apart. It's like, no, this one is different from the rest for a certain purpose. So that's what the day of stopping, you do the stopping, or you stop doing the other things. You stop, and in doing that, it is now set apart and uncommon from the other days of the week as a way to draw near to God. So in the context here, it's literally a day of stopping every single week to set that time apart for God's purposes and also to symbolize that these people are set apart for God's purposes. Okay? So here's the idea. Big summary. The people of God deny themselves productivity as a sign to the world and a reminder to themselves that there is a creator God that has delivered them from bondage, made the world, given them a plan of a purpose, and they are not that creator God, okay? They are not him. There is a creator God, and it's not you. Surprise, right? Some of you just found that out 55 years in. Congratulations, right? It's Yahweh establishing a pattern of life for his people that they do not live by their work and effort alone, but what they live by is the kindness and generosity of their God, Yahweh. A pattern. Every week, we need a reminder. Every week, we need a reminder. Every week, we need a reminder. Now, to be honest, this is a little weird for me. Because I'm a pastor, so I'm pretty used to people listening to me speak and not having any intention of doing what I say. Like, I'm just used to that, right? It's pretty common. But there's usually the majority of people that will at least say, yeah, that's really good. I should do that. Are you going to do it? No, but I should. Okay, well, that's better than nothing. But when it comes to Sabbath, I know that almost all of you are going to hear me say a day of stopping every week and be like, I ain't doing that. I'm not even going to try. Too much to do, Jared. Got too much going on. Can't possibly do it. Which is a little weird for me because it's the only one of the Ten Commandments we treat like that. And, and some of the arguments are like, well, Jesus died on the cross, so we don't have to do Sabbath anymore. And I'm like, we don't do that with the other Ten Commandments. So like, Jesus died on the cross, so we can lie, right? Or Jesus died on the cross, so let's go murder. And while we're at it, make some carved images, right? Like, we don't, none of those other ones, we're like, they don't apply anymore. We can have lots of other gods before Yahweh, it's fine. But when it comes to the Sabbath, we're like, no, we're fine. Which is sad. Because the fourth commandment is the most unique of all the commands. Okay? It's the most Yahweh of any of the commands. All the other commands, you could probably find some sort of parallel in other, like, worldviews and their understanding of morality, right? Other religions think it's bad to murder. Other religions and worldviews think it's bad to lie. Other religions and worldviews, almost all of them, think it's bad to steal. Nobody else takes a day a week to stop and remember they do not live by their work alone. 
but by the kindness and generosity of Yahweh. In a world where people worship their gods and idols in certain places and doing certain activities, and we have temples, right, and people are like, I got to go here and do my thing, or, or we, we serve these things in our lives like finances or relationships or ourselves, and it's all about the activity that we do in pursuit of those things that we're devoted to, right? And Yahweh says, I'm not going to meet my people in a place. I'm not even actually going to meet my people in a an activity, I'm going to meet my people on a day. Think about how different that is than every other God that people serve, right? Not on a day of doing, but on a day of stopping. I don't want them to do a thing to meet me. I want them to stop doing things so they can meet me. That's radically different from the other gods that are out there, the other things that you can serve. It's the most unique command of all of them, and it's probably the most contrary to the current American culture. The idea that we would stop doing productive things for a whole day, to take a day where you don't add anything to your life, where you don't consume any products or buy more things, right? To take a day where you aren't productive, where you don't achieve but you stop everything that does not draw you nearer to Yahweh. People would look at you like you have three eyes if you suggest that. What? You expect me to do that? Here's another thing that makes the fourth command unique. It's actually a call to be like Yahweh. Okay, now the other commands are as well, okay? Because like Yahweh doesn't steal and Yahweh doesn't lie and Yahweh, you know, go down the list. But Yahweh created the world in six days and then he rested. And now he calls his people to work for six days and then rest. So the people of God image the God who loves them to the world by doing what he did, which is rest. And rest is central to the nature and character of Yahweh. We said it earlier, most religions are characterized by action, right? We draw near to and meet our God with certain actions or the things we're devoted to with certain actions and ceremonies. And we show our devotion to those things through action and effort, right? I love the Seahawks, so I watch every game, right? And I'll, I'll skip everything else in order to watch the game or I'll record all the games so I can know every player and like look up all the information on the internet, or I'm super into playing soccer. So if you're super into playing soccer, what do you do to show your devotion to soccer? You never miss a practice. You play year round. You're into club, right? You sign up for all these opportunities. You're always doing to show your devotion to practice, to soccer. Or if you're wealthy, right? What do you do to show your devotion to your wealth? You're checking the stock market. You're checking the investments, right? You're, you're doing all these things to show your devotion to these things. And now Yahweh calls his people to meet him, not by action, but inaction. You see how it's the most unique of all the commands? Like this is more Yahweh than any of the commands. It's more unique and different than anything Yahweh calls his people to do. And we get this wrong in the church just as much as anywhere else. Think about it. What do people say when they didn't like the church service? I didn't get anything out of it. Translation, I didn't feel like it was productive enough. Did you come to worship or did you come to feel productive? 
I, I don't know that there's a right answer there. Like, I want you to get something out of it, right? I don't want you to go like, oh, this, that was completely stupid. I'll do it again next week. But, like, there is some, like, wrestling through that. Like, are we offering something to the Lord, whether or not we feel something about it? Or does it have to be productive for us to come back? And if it's not productive enough, then, yeah, if I got nothing else going on, maybe I'll make it. And that's church culture. That's the people that claim to be the people of God. Like, forget the people that are out there doing their own thing. My wife has this thing where um, she hates red roses. But I had this, I don't remember where it happened, but somewhere in my childhood, I was told that red roses symbolize love. And she's like, I don't like red roses. I like yellow roses. And I was like, somebody told me one time that that means friendship. And you are not my friend. You are my wife. So I will not buy you yellow roses. And then white roses are like a funeral. Did, did, did I make this up or anybody else heard this sometime? Maybe it's my mom. She's nodding. She told me, right? It's your fault. Okay. So for years, I would go to the store and have like this inner angst between like, I'm trying to buy my wife roses, and this one means love to me, but she doesn't like it. And I'm like, what do I do? And for a while, I'd just buy her red roses. And she'd be like, I don't like that. And I'd be like, so what? I love you. And <laughs> it makes me feel like I love you, so I'm going to do it. And now we have come to a compromise, and I buy her peach-colored roses. Because <laughs> that's what she likes. But it was this thing where I had to feel good about how I was showing my wife love. And if I didn't feel good about it, then I didn't want to do it. And you know what? My wife didn't appreciate that very much, which is weird, right? Are you buying me flowers for me or are you buying me flowers for you? Because when you buy me red flowers that you know I don't like, it kind of feels like you're doing it for you. And we giggle, but we do that at church a lot. We come to church for us, not for the God we serve. Maybe the most important thing is that we take a day of stopping and deny ourselves productivity to give God worship. Whether or not we feel great about it. Whether or not we felt productive. Whether or not we felt like we got something out of it. Okay. I know that was a lot. Here's the biggest reason that the day of stopping was a big deal. Okay? So if you forgot all that other stuff, that's fine. But here's the big deal. The Bible tells us that this pattern of a day of stopping and resting was intended to be not only a reflection of the character of God, but a sign of the future rest that the Savior of the world would bring. Remember, you go all the way back to Genesis uh, and mankind was created, and they were like in the Garden of Eden, they're like doing good, and God's like, hey, everything you could do, just don't touch that tree. And they're like, we're going to touch the tree. And uh, so they did, and then they're like, you know, God doesn't always talk about, we're going to eat this fruit, and they did, and God's like, ah, well, I told you, right? And then uh, God promised a Savior in that moment. He didn't give them the list of rules then. He promised a Savior, and in, inherent, as, as the Old Testament goes along and reveals more and more about what's happening when the Savior comes, we get this picture of the Savior who's going to bring rest 
from the consequences of sin and disobedience that mankind has brought upon itself. Like most of your life is hard because of stuff that you've done. I don't know if anybody wants to say amen to that, but most of the choices that you make are poor. Now, not everybody, right? If you're the victim of some sort, like there's obviously real consequences to other people's sin in your life. I'm not diminishing that because that's true too. But there's a lot of things going on in the world where we cannot experience rest because of mankind's sin, either our own or those in our lives. And the Savior of the world promised to put an end to that, that we might enter into rest. So this day of rest was not only a reminder of the character and nature of God that he worked for six days and rested, but it was pointing to this future rest when we would live in a world where we were not paying for our brokenness and sin over and over. And what would happen is they would go every single day, every single week, every single year, and they would be like, hey, we broke the terms of the covenant. We need to pay for that. We need to atone for that. We need to make it right. And so they would sacrifice animals. And what happened was it was work. It was work to atone for all the ways they broke this covenant. And over and over and over for thousands of years, they were working to pay off their breaking of the covenant relationship with Yahweh. And while they were working to pay that off, they were also giving this picture one day a week of this future time when they would no longer have to work to pay off their breaking of the covenant of Yahweh, but they would rest in the Savior of the world who paid for all of their sin. And no longer would we live by our work, but we would live in his rest. And what happened is Jesus came and he died on the cross. And the night before he died on the cross, he held up a cup and he said, this is the new covenant, a new covenant of rest. And so they were looking forward to the cross by taking a day every week and reminding themselves that we are the not working people, we are the not productive people, we are the day of stopping people because our God is a God of rest. And we, my guess would be, should be looking back to the cross and going, we do not live by our work alone, but we enter into that rest that Jesus achieved for us as he died on the cross for our sins. Jesus did the work so that the people could rest. And one day a week, it was like they were practicing resting, practicing not working, practicing not earning, practicing not being productive. Here we are 2,000 years later, and we recognize you don't draw near to God by working harder. You draw near to God by resting in the work of Jesus. If, if, if the Ten Commandments are the way you draw near to God, which is weird because people think the Ten Commandments are the way you earn God's favor. Like, you need to work really hard to follow all these. If that's, like, there's a day of rest that we need to enter into. In fact, later on in the book of Hebrews, when it's talking about this, it'll be like, don't fail to enter into the rest. That's New Testament language. It's like, don't fail to enter into the rest. Do not fall for the trap of trying to be productive with your entire life and fail to enter into the greatest thing that God has promised, which is rest from your work. There are lots of great things that God has promised. The number one greatest thing is rest. How many of you hear rest and you're like, mm, take it or leave it? 
right? Don't raise your hands. There's a mom close to you that'll punch you in the neck, right? Rest is the highest goal of God for his creation. And that rest in Jesus has been modeled by the people of God by a day of stopping every week as a reminder to myself to rest wholly in the work of Jesus, to be a picture of what God has promised. So we're going to do that, right? Maybe you're like the kind of attitude I described earlier, and I was like, take a day of the week, and you're like, nope, not happening, not even close. I'm thinking about making lunch and mowing my yard right now. Fine. We got some time left. We're going to sing some songs, right? Maybe just take this next 10 minutes and rest in what Jesus has done. And if you can't, ask the Lord, why can I not? Why am I not resting? Am I missing something? Am I trying to be too productive? Do I keep buying you red roses, Lord, even though you told me you don't like them? Let's pray. Father, your word is intended to not only to draw us near to you, but to give us life and life more abundantly.